Hello, you're listening to the podcast Surgery ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. The topic that I'm choosing to talk today about is crush injury and traumatic rhabdomyolysis, or my, as well as myoglobinuria. Those of you who have been following the uh, sequence of the podcast know that our last podcast was on myocardial ischemia, which is part one, and we are due to do a part two podcast, but we're going to come back to that at a later date. I had to give a talk on um, this topic today, and I felt it was appropriate to record this to a podcast and to push it out. Um, the Starting with the topic of um, uh, crush syndrome, it was initially described back in World War I, and uh, a physician named Meyer Betts described it, a syndrome of uh, muscle pain, weakness, and brown urine. And it was typically seen in German soldiers who were buried and rescued subsequent from the trenches. You remember, obviously, the trench warfare of World War I. We also saw um, a crush syndrome type uh, picture in the Battle of Britain and and those people who were uh, in London and uh, survived the uh, um, uh, bombing of of London and were trapped in in the rubble there as well. There are other settings that we see currently in in more modern uh, society, typical of mine collapses. We've had several mine collapses here within the United States and and somebody who's uh, been in a mine collapse, maybe uh, trapped by their legs, is at risk for uh, crush syndrome. Also, people who have been victims of severe beatings, victims of earthquakes and have been uh, found under the rubble, landslides, building collapses, uh, either through uh, explosions or uh, just um, um, earthquakes, uh, alcohol and and drug intoxication, people who have uh, been rendered unconscious by drugs or alcohol and are basically um, found in in, uh, uh, one position for a prolonged period of time will begin to have muscle breakdown and uh, traumatic rhabdomyolysis. Uh, other types of injuries where we may say severe arrhythmiolysis, uh, particularly in, in burr patients, has to do with electrical injuries, whether they're lightning strikes or high-voltage power lines. This results in direct muscle damage uh, and also uh, blood vessel coagulation, and about 10% of those patients will go on to develop renal failure. Now, crush syndrome has a very characteristic syndrome. It's also going to be known as traumatic rhabdomyolysis. In the involvement of large muscle masses, and typically the patients have been victims of prolonged compression, and this results in compromised local circulation. Rhabdomyolysis is the liberation of components of injured skeletal muscle into the circulation. The things that are in skeletal muscle are good when they're in skeletal muscle. But when you have severe soft tissue damage and those elements that are inside the muscle cell are liberated systemically, they can result in some severe problems for the patient, particularly when we start thinking about what's inside muscle cells. Well, what's inside all of our cells in reasonably high concentrations are things like potassium, uh, also uh, things like myoglobin. And when these are released into the systemic circulation, we can have severe problems and, and systemic toxicities. Now, Things that cause uh, crush syndrome or rhabdomyolysis are things like direct compression and resulting in muscle ischemia. That when you have tissue pr- uh, pressure, this results in uh, capillary perfusion. Pr- it typically will exceed the capillary perfusion pressure. And if the capillary, if it exceeds the capillary perfusion pressure, obviously those capillaries are not getting perfused, and you're getting necro- ischemia and necrosis uh, in that muscle, resulting in muscular death. 
when the compression is relieved by extricating the patient or removing the heavy object, the muscle is reperfused. And you've heard me say time and time again, it's often not the fall that kills us, but the sudden stop. That's clearly what we have here in crush syndrome as well, is that certainly having poor blood flow uh, to a group of muscles is problematic, that if we don't get blood flow to a large group of muscles, those muscles are going to die. Uh, but there is a secondary problem that we have that when we remove the compression or remove the obstruction to the blood vessels, those blood vessels get reperfused. And on that reperfusion, we release into the systemic circulations toxins that have accumulated in that injured extremity. Now, when we talk about crush syndrome and rhabdomyolysis, perhaps the most feared and, and, and perhaps the most serious complication is that of acute renal failure. And depending on the literature that you're looking at, acute renal failure can occur between 4 and 33% of the patients. So when you see a large number like that, it's really hard to, to say with any great confidence that we have a good understanding of what's going on between 4 and 33%. That's, you know, that sounds like almost like a, a cable TV. Uh, someone's going to be there for your cable TV, and you ask them what time they're going to be there, and they say, well, between 8 and 5. really doesn't give you a whole lot of guidance between 4 and 33%. The mortality rate of patients who develop renal failure, secondary to uh, uh, rhabdomyolysis from crush syndrome, will range between 3 and 50%. Now, the duration of the ischemia really determines the degree of muscle injury. Now, large skeletal muscles can tolerate warm ischemia time pretty well for about up to two hours. When you start getting between four and six hours, you really get into irreversible anatomical and functional changes. And once you're out beyond six hours, you can get pretty severe muscle necrosis. Now, again, we said that this is a ischemia reperfusion type of injury. Certainly, the ischemia will lead to muscle destruction, but you don't get the systemic release of all of the um, um, toxic elements that are in the muscle cell until you reperfuse uh, the extremity or reopen the blood vessel. And the contents of the affected muscles are released into the systemic circulation. We also get increased capillary permeability. And what I'll tell people when you think about capillary permeability is that if you try to, to like hold your hands together and you look at how your fingers interdigitate. If you held them real tight, you could probably hold some water. But as you start to spread those hands out, you begin to see sort of gaps between where your fingers are interdigitating. Well, the endothelial cells that make up your blood vessels are very much like your fingers, when you, your hands when you hold them together. And when you get systemic conditions like sepsis, like crush syndrome, um, you get the, those endothelial cells will start getting increased permeability by a gap developing between the interdigitations of those endothelial cells. And this can result in profound amount of third uh, space fluid sequestration. Well, third space fluid sequestration is something that we typically throw that name around commonly, and what is the real definition of third space fluid? And I love to ask the residents this, and I get a variety of answers, but the physiological explanation of what third space fluid is, it's fluid that's non-interchangeable with the vascular space. Fluid that's non-interchangeable with the vascular space. So you could try to force diurese all these patients. You're not going to mobilize third space fluid. And massive amounts of fluids are sequestered into the evolved extremities. Some of the papers I've read will talk commonly about 12 liters of fluid sequestration. When you think about it, 12 liters of fluid sequestration, that's a lot of fluid. 
but think about our 80 kilogram male, the, the typical 80 kilogram male that we typically uh, speak of. Well, our estimated blood volume is roughly 80 cc's per kilo. And if we have 80 cc's per kilo and we're dealing with a 80 kilogram individual, we're talking about basically 6.4 liters. So sequestering 10 to 12 liters is a massive amount. Now, going back and looking at the pathophysiology, Blaylock, uh, Dr. Alfred Blaylock, was actually historically, for Van those of us at Vanderbilt, uh, someone who we hold dear to our heart, the first surgical resident ever trained at Vanderbilt uh, at our surgical program was Dr. Alfred Blaylock. And in, 19, uh, in the early 1930s, and he characterized that large volumes of plasma are accumulated in traumatized extremities, enough that you can result in severe intravascular fluid loss, and that can result in, 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 in shock. The other problems that we have with some of these massive extremity injuries are the large toxin load that we get from myoglobin. Myoglobin, as you remember, is, is typically known as a respiratory pigment. We know what hemoglobin is. Hemoglobin is a, a, a complex molecule, four-unit uh, molecule with iron moieties, which bind oxygen and is used for oxygen transport. Well, myoglobin has a cousin of hemoglobin, um, and it, instead of uh, a four-unit um, molecule. It's a single unit, but it also has iron in it. And, and again, it's used for oxygen metabolism in the cell. When released, it is directly toxic. It has some toxic effects to the kidneys. Other things is we release large amounts of intracellular contents. We have life-threatening electrolyte changes. We have influx of calcium into the affected muscle tissue. We can have really severe hypocalcemia, which is very dangerous when we combine it with hyperkalemia that we see from releasing the cells in acidemia. Let's just take a break and talk about potassium for a second. Potassium is um, potassium is found mostly intracellularly. And being mostly intracellular, the concentrations, remember that the across a membrane, you have to have reasonable electroneutrality across the membrane. So we have very large amounts of sodium extracellular and, and reasonably small amounts of potassium extracellular. Well, intracellularly, we have just about the opposite. We have large concentrations of potassium in the cell and small concentrations of sodium inside the cell. So when you get massive tissue destruction or cell destruction, uh, with the potassium, large amounts of potassium are released and get systemically, uh, re cause the systemic problems. Now, when we have hyperkalemia, we'll know that hyperkalemia causes cardiotoxicity. If somebody calls you in the ICU and the nurse tells you that somebody's potassium is 6.5 or 7, that immediately evokes some anxiety in you. Well, the most immediate reason is, is that you know that it can result in pretty severe arrhythmias. And when we look at how we treat hyperkalemia, we really use a three-prong approach. We treat hyperkalemia. We redistribute it, we protect the heart, and then we try to get the potassium out of the body. Well, what is this redistribution? Well, we typically tell people if somebody's potassium is six and a half, first thing we want to do is protect the heart. And we give calcium to protect the heart from the arrhythmic problems of having high levels of potassium. Well, we've already told you that it can be very dangerous um, uh, when um, we have it particularly in a uh, crush type syndrome, but also we're complicated that we really can't give any more calcium because calcium in a crush syndrome will create uh, conditions known as metastatic calcifications. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. 
So the other problem is, is that with potassium is that when we try to treat hyperkalemia, we give drugs like dextrose and insulin. Uh, the idea is that insulin is going to try to drive the potassium in the cell. Well, what cells is it going to drive it into? Because there's such large amounts of tissue destruction, those, t those cells are reasonably well destroyed. Um, and so those are some of the problems of treating um, patients with crush syndrome. When we look at the causes of death from crush syndrome, particularly in the first three or four days, the, the, the far leading cause of death in these patients is the hypovolemia. Um, and we see that from about day zero all the way out to the fourth day. The second most common cause of death from day one to about day four is the hyperkalemia. And then we get into some of these other problems with the crush syndrome, notably uh, complications associated with the renal failure. Now, as we move on, um, when we look at these patients, typically when they come in, what we'll typically see is in their urine, their urine can be tea-colored or slightly red, looks almost like a mild hematuria, or in, in severe cases, you'll see basically uh, urine that looks like just crankcase motor oil, uh, clearly indicating that you know this is coming from somewhere and that um, uh, it's from muscle, massive muscle destruction. Now, a lot of times the patients are coming in and uh, so they're a large burn patient or um, they've been electrocuted. Um, we really shouldn't say electrocuted. That means it implies that they were, were put to death by electricity. So we should say um, severe, sustained a severe electrical injury. I will kind of slow things down and not want the patient to be immediately intubated um, because often they don't need to be crash intubated, but I'd like to see what the Foley catheter looks like. And, and people will sometimes poke fun and say, hey, you know, Dr. Guy, you know, A is airway and it comes, you know, it comes before F or Foley catheter. But you can get a lot of information in these kind of patients by looking at the Foley catheter, looking at the urine. Because if you put the Foley catheter in and you're getting red urine or tea-colored urine or cola-colored urine or just black urine, what is that indicating to you? Well, what it indicates to me is that the patient has severe uh, myoglobinuria. And if they've, if they've got myoglobin in their urine, it came from somewhere. What was the pathophysiology of how it got in the urine? Well, the pathophysiology of how it got to urine, to me, tells me there was massive muscle destruction. And if the muscle was destroyed to release this much myoglobin, it also released a large amount of potassium. Why is that relevant? Well, the relevance there is think about how a lot of patients get intubated, particularly with pharmacologically assisted intubation or with rapid sequence intubation, they're going to get drugs like succinylcholine. And you do not want to use succinylcholine in the face of somebody who's had uh, hyperkalemia. That'll create a whole different set of problems. Same thing, somebody comes into the crush syndrome. Somebody has been uh, under a, a building collapse or whatever and they need to be intubated. One of the things you need to know is that hyperkalemia is the second cause of death next to hypovolemia. And you don't want to sit there and just slam these people with succinylcholine to intubate them because you're ignoring the, the pathophysiology of the disease and that is large numbers have hyperkalemia. What are some of the other things that reside inside these cells uh, that um, are released. Well, potassium, and that causes hyperkalemia and cardiotoxicity. Um, and it's um, uh, phosphate, uh, which will result in hyperphosphatemia, which will actually worsen the hypocalcemia. And the, the and these high levels of phosphorus will actually cause something called metastatic calcification. And this is aggravated if you give somebody calcium. So now you can see the, the difficulty that you have is that if you have somebody who has high levels of potassium, 
they have high levels of phosphorus, they start having problems or you're worried about them having cardiac arrhythmias, but you can't give them calcium because you're worried about um, causing metastatic calcification. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means you probably need to be thinking about hemodialysis in a shorter term or getting the, the nephrology people moving um, at a lower threshold than you ordinarily would. Also, things that release we talked about are myoglobin, but also uh, creatinine kinase. Uh, and we see severe uh, um, elevations of uh, CK levels. Um, and some people would say, you know, levels between 10,000 and some authors say 25,000. But significant elevations of CK are usually a good predictor that you've had some pretty significant muscle damage. Now, clearly you have to rule out that the patient didn't have some sort of myocardial ischemic event. Um, other things that get released are thromboplastin, and this could result in a uh, disseminated uh, intravascular coagulation picture as well. Um, and so you'll have DIC and decreased platelet levels. Um, the pathophysiology of the renal injury we already mentioned about has a mortality rate of about 3 to 50% and about 4 to 33% of patients who have uh, the myoglobinuria, the tra traumatic rhabdomyolysis, will experience um, acute renal failure. We're not supposed to call it acute renal failure anymore. We're supposed to call it acute kidney injury. I think the kidneys were getting you know, their feelings hurt about the idea of acute renal failure. And we don't want to any we don't want to alienate any organ, so we don't want them to fail. We just say that they're injured. Now there are three mechanisms that cause the renal failure or the uh, acute kidney injury, and that is a decreased renal perfusion. And we've mentioned the, how that occurs, and that occurs through the massive fluid losses that we see with these injuries. Also, cast formation of tubular obstruction as well as the direct toxic effects associated with the myoglobin. Now, the cast formation of tubular obstruction, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I'm trying to think of a way to uh, be polite in how to explain this, but the myoglobin, particularly in acidic urine environment, with an acidic urine, the myoglobin precipitates. It forms into a solid type uh, uh, formation. And when it does this, it basically plugs up the tubules of the kidneys and kind of like a backed up toilet. Um, if something is obstructing the toilet, obviously you're not going to have any forward flow. And that's what happens with the myoglobin. Now, if you could dissolve the obstruction of your toilet, hey, that's pretty good because now you can flush the toilet and get rid of the waste products. Well, the same is true here, that if you try to alkalinize the urine, try to get the pH of the urine, say, above 6.5, it makes these myoglobin casts more soluble. They dissolve, and when they dissolve, they, they basically allow the tubules to stay open. The other thing that we talk about is flushing uh, the kidneys and uh, trying to maintain urine outputs between 100 and 200 cc's an hour. And we do this principally with large volumes of IV fluid resuscitation. No real advantage here of colloids or, or hypertonic salines or things like Hespan, um, but uh, just the use of large amounts of fluid. Now, some of the direct toxic effects that we see of myoglobin are uh, mediated through free radical mediated renal injury. Also, we see have some lipid peroxidation in the renal tubules. Uh, and this can be offset with, through oxygen-free radical scavengers. And one oxygen-free radical scavenger that's very attractive in this scenario is a volume expander, actually is a osmotic diuretic, so it does keep you, keep it so you have reasonably good and brisk urine output, and that's mannitol. Uh, mannitol is a volume expander, 
Mannitol does have properties as a free rod, as an oxygen-free radical scavenger. But the things you need to be careful about with uh, a mannitol is that it'll cause an osmotic diuresis, and that could make your patient potentially get dehydrated, which would be problematic given the fact that we said they've already got significant third space fluid losses. The diagnosis of myoglobinuria once patients get to the hospital, clearly somebody who's got painful extremities, prolonged entrapment, their urine is dark tea-colored. Um, when you send the urinalysis or do the urine dip, you want somebody who has a large free hemoglobin, is what you would typically see, and very few red cells. That's diagnostic for the most part for myoglobinuria. Clearly, you could send a, a serum myoglobin. Clearly, you could send a urine myoglobin. It's going to take a little bit more time. But a urinalysis that shows large free hemoglobin and uh, little or no red cells, that is um, myoglobinuria. Now, we talked about the cast formation. It occurs with acidic urine. Therefore, try to alkalinize the urine with sodium bicarbonate, and that will reduce the cast formation. Uh, serum kinase will be elevated, and that correlates with the degree of muscle injury pretty well. And the hypovolemic shock is, the, like we said, is the most common cause of death following injury, and therefore uh, vigorous fluid resuscitation. Uh, mannitol for osmotic diuresis and increased urine output, and this may reduce the intracompartmental pressure. Uh, and this has been shown in canine models. Uh, and the mannitol has been proposed by some, not particularly by me, but by some, as a conservative alternative to fasciotomy. Now the pre-hospital management of a confined space patient is really our typical paradigm has been to extricate the patient and then evacuate to medical sources. Um, and we've classified that if we extricated a live victim, we considered that a success. Well, extricating a live patient's good for that immediate uh, uh, rescue, but have we extricated a patient and have we minimized their morbidity and reduced their mortality in doing so? Um, you know, if we extricate a patient but haven't vigorously volume resuscitated them, we may have put them in a situation where they're more at risk for the development of renal failure, or they're more uh, at risk for, um, uh, I'm sorry, more at risk for the development of uh, complications down the road. So early fluid resuscitation needs to be coordinated while the patient is still entrapped. Um, and getting the patient uh, fluid resuscitated can minimize some of the detrimental effects that we'll see in regards to uh, hypovolemia and hyperkalemia and renal failure. Um, that means getting the, flu getting the IV started while you're doing your rescue. And um, this has been uh, something that has not been previously uh, very uh, enthusiastically received. Now, you know, you may not have good access to the limbs. Clearly, you're going to be starting peripheral IVs in very contaminated environments, and therefore, you want to get those IVs out as soon as you possibly can but they're going to serve their immediate purpose. If you need to start intraosseous infusions to save the patient's life and save their kidneys, by all means do that. Uh, if you can't get access to the lower extremities, you can certainly start an intraosseous infusion in the sternum or the humerus, and we have a separate podcast that talks about those. There are real dangers to the rescuers in confined space rescues. You know, a confined space is really defined as a location where there's restricted entry or exit, and a typical location is not designated, or not designed, I should say, for continuous safe occupancy. 
There are a variety of inherent dangers, and that includes a toxic atmosphere. Uh, you could be in a situation with that's uh, high in methane or carbon monoxide. We're well aware of uh, the toxins that uh, uh, people have uh, reported following uh, the World Trade Center collapse. The rescuers were exposed to unknown uh, magnitudes of toxins and some of the syndromes that patients have or uh, rescuers have uh, reported uh, since that uh, rescue. Uh, there's also a potential for engulfing the entrance, a trench collapse where a building can shift and anybody providing rescue can, can be injured or killed uh, and, and even asphyxiation. Um, the environment is considered so dangerous that traditional care has really been considered inappropriate in the whole. Um, and um, so much so that rescuers, uh, some literature reports that the 1.6 rescuers die uh, for every initial victim rescued in these confined space rescues. This is a very dangerous environment for the pre-hospital provider. Early aggressive hydration prior to extrication when possible. And again, forced diuresis with mannitol. You want to try to get your output of 100 to 200 an hour. But again, if you don't have access to the lower body and you're in a pre-hospital environment, you don't have access uh, to a Foley catheter. Uh, and we talked about the need for alkalinization to urine. Uh, when necessary, renal replacement therapy will correct the fluid and electrolyte abnormalities. Now, this is very interesting because when you look at um, the causes of death following uh, some of these earthquakes, you've had hundreds and hundreds of patients who have presented with crush syndrome. And there are organizations of nephrologists who basically have the disaster response units that following a major earthquake, they mobilize and, and um, um, large numbers of nephrologists and, and renal nurses and dialysis machines and equipment and will go into these uh, uh, earthquake zones to be able to save lives by having access, by providing these patients with access to large numbers of these specialists and this specialized equipment. Again, thinking about you have... Uh, uh, you know, a couple hundred patients who uh, all of a sudden go into acute kidney injury needing a renal replacement therapy creates some very significant logistical issues. The hypocalcemia should not be corrected unless there's a danger of a hyperkalemic arrhythmia because most of the infused calcium is deposited into the injured muscles and it may aggravate the pathogenesis of rhabdomyolysis and actually cause the metastatic calcifications that we've talked about. Now, compartment syndromes are a um, well-known complication associated with um, um, crush syndrome, and we actually have a, an entire podcast dedicated to compartment syndromes. Remember that normal compartment pressure is between 0 and 15. Compartment pressure is greater than 30. Certainly over 50 produce ischemia and require decompression. And patients with higher diastolic pressures tolerate compartment pressures without ischemia. So some people look at the difference between the measured compartment pressure and the diastolic pressure. And if that number is less than 20, consider uh, fasciotomies. Um, the five P's of compartment syndrome, again, this is review because we have it in our other podcasts, are pain, pallor, paralysis, paresthesias and pulselessness. Um, and fasciotomy should be performed when the compartment pressure is about 20 millimeters below the diastolic pressure. Um, now, patients who have delayed presentation, which may occur certainly in a mass casualty circumstance, um, uh, delayed, say, 10 or 12 hours, fasciotomy does not benefit the patient. In fact, there's evidence in the literature that by doing fasciotomies in a delayed fashion may actually put the patient at more harm because you're taking a, um, you're, you're basically converting this to an open wound and, and the patient will have more septic types of complications. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Um, the uh, website for which uh, these podcasts are found are on www.icrounds.com. 
my home website is uh, burndoc.com, and hopefully I'm going to try to uh, redo that website. Um, there's also a pharmacology book that we've uh, that is in the pre-release phase. I think it can be purchased on Amazon. That's Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Provider by myself, Jeff Guy, and it's being published by Elsevier. We're starting a podcast uh, to uh, uh, complement that book. So if you're studying the pharmacology uh, book, uh, we are going to basically uh, do podcasts around the books as a uh, supplement to the material. Uh, thank you for listening. Have a good evening.